This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Welcome back, everybody. We're so happy to be back with you after taking the week off last week. And we have a good one for you to uh, welcome us back. But before we get into that, just a couple of announcements. I did want to remind everyone that we do have a Patreon page. So if you want to support the podcast, that's a great way to do it. And we have some fun little extras over there. We have body to burial stickers and we release a bonus episode every month that's exclusive to Patreons. You also get early access. So if you don't want to wait until Tuesday morning to listen to the episode, you do get it on Sunday. So you'll have it fresh for your Monday morning commute. So Go check it out, Body to Burial on Patreon.com. All sorts of goodies over there available to you. And also, we just announced a couple of days ago our March pick for the book club. So if you're interested in reading along with us, the book for March is American Predator by Maureen Callahan. American Predator, it's a great read. Again, there is an option on the Patreon page to join the Body to Burial book club. And through that, you will get access to live meetings where we chat about the book. At the end of the month, you get Body to Burial bookmarks and all sorts of goodies and a candle and all sorts of stuff. So if you want to elevate your book club experience, definitely head to Patreon. If you just want to read alongside us at your own pacing, you can totally do that too. I'm about, I don't know, a quarter of the way, almost halfway through the book. It's a great read. Highly encourage it. American Predator. Go check it out. There is a link on our Instagram to the Amazon book if that's easy for you too. I think that's all I had. Nikki, did you have something? Oh, you 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 do have an announcement. So yes, I'm going to kick it to you, Nikki. Okay. I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time and rating and reviewing us. And we are currently at 41 ratings on Apple. So if we get to 60, we're going to have a giveaway. And on that giveaway, you can get your choice of a exclusive body to burial coffee mug that we've had made for our guests or a candle. And we will post pictures of the coffee mug or the candle on our Instagram page. And you can, if you're not following us on Instagram, go to Instagram and our handle is body to burial and you can see the pictures and we, that's where you will get all the information on the giveaway once we get to 60 ratings. And I think that's it. Okay, so for this week, we have Mark. And Mark is the president of Forensic Behavioral Services, which, you know, it's kind of like, again, basic Mariah understandings, but it's really the study of the behavior of an individual. So Mark was a former FBI agent who worked in the behavioral analysis unit. You know, it's kind of like Mindhunter. And Mindhunter. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the FBI unit that's in the silence of the lambs. You know, it's kind of like understanding more about the individual and why they are operating a certain way or what their concerns are or lack of concerns, their motives, their kind of understanding the victimology uh, associated with the cases. So I think he will be a fantastic guest and I'm very excited to welcome him. I'm excited. I love Criminal Minds and I love like 
the behavior, why they pick their people, why they are the way they are. Ooh, I love this. Right? It's kind of just understanding the ticks and the quirks and and how they can determine those from a crime scene. Interesting. Love it. So I think it'll be good, right? It's going to be a good Tuesday. I'm excited. I'm very excited. Another movie or TV show that we always talk about that always ties everything is. I love Mindhunter. I love Mindhunter too. Did you see that they're not bringing it back? What? Officially, it's dead. I just what? This is the nerdy side of me. Yeah, I just signed the petition. There's a petition going around to advocate for Netflix to bring it back for another season. But are David you kidding? Said that he didn't want to do it, and it's over. What? I'm sorry to break that to you and to break it to you live in front of all of our listeners. Oh my God. I didn't know. You just ruined my day. What? Sorry about that. Yeah. Oh my. That can't be real. It's real. That's very, very real. Oh God, you're killing me. Okay. I well, know, thank you I'm so for that. Sorry. I know. Ah, uh, I know. I was so bummed. I've been waiting for that show to come back for years. Thought, oh, you know, COVID and blah blah blah. They'll they'll pick it up again once everything starts going back into production. But no, David Fincher said no. You're killing me. But maybe Mark today can kind of ease the you know the shock and hurt and loss of Mindhunter by kind of. Being our very own mine hunter. Okay, yeah, I'll take that. That'll soften it a little bit. Okay. I'm still shocked, but okay. <laughs> we'll have to process your feelings. Yeah, I'm gonna need air, a minute. But you know, well, I'm excited about today. Even though mine hunter is yeah. not coming back, I'm still very excited about a real life mine hunter. So this is awesome. Right there we go. So there we go. So maybe this was a perfect episode for you to find out that it's not coming back because we've got a nice little band aid. So yeah, perfect. let me go get him. Let me bring them on, and we'll try to put your your disappointment maybe a little less hurtful. Okay, thank you. Okay. Well, welcome, and, and thank you for taking the time to join us. We really sure. appreciate it. Let's jump into it. Go ahead and introduce yourself, and then in one to two sentences, describe what you do, but you have to describe it as if we were fourth or fifth graders. Very basic. <laughs> you mean the general audience that's listening yes, to podcasts? Yeah, exactly. Okay, sure. So my name is Mark Safrick. I am currently the president of Forensic Behavioral Services, and I'm a retired FBI criminal profiler. I spent almost 13 years as a profiler in the FBI of a 23-year career. And I think a lot of people misinterpret what profilers are really doing. But in essence, what I'm doing is analyzing and interpreting the behavioral dynamics, which includes physical evidence, forensic evidence, and behavioral evidence at complex violent crime scenes to essentially understand what happened, how those events unfolded, and why they occurred. Is, do you start in the beginning where you're building a profile of a suspect that they should be looking for, or do you come in after and then kind of dissect that person? So the process that I use is called criminal investigative analysis, and it just depends on what the agency is asking for. So I think most people, because of the various television shows are familiar with criminal profilers. And I think generally they think that they are profiling a criminal typically in a violent crime, like a murder or a sexual assault. But there are various services that we can offer. So it depends on what they're looking for. Perhaps an agency has 
developed a potentially good suspect, but they may think they only have one shot at doing the interview. So they may be asking for an interview strategy, or perhaps they're asking for expert testimony work where they've arrested somebody, but it's a circumstantial case. And they're looking for this type of analysis to bolster the, the court presentation. Or maybe they're seeking a search warrant, but based on this type of crime, they don't really know what things they should be searching for. So perhaps that's what they're looking for. Or as most people commonly think about it, you have an unknown offender that the individual is unidentified, much like the, in the Idaho murder cases, right? You have these murders that are going on with the investigation going on for weeks, but we don't have a suspect identified. So and in fact, FBI profilers were at that scene where they're looking at all of the information to essentially provide a profile of what this suspect will look like and who they should be looking for. And let's talk about that case in particular. How would you go about building a suspect profile based on what evidence is there. This scene is a very complicated scene. You have multiple victims in a house that has multiple levels, and you also have surviving, essentially, victims in this house. So, you know, it's a process. The first part of the process really is looking at victimology and understanding why these particular young people became the victims of homicide in this way. What was it about them or their backgrounds or their connections? You're looking at their history to see if there's something in the history that helps point you in a particular direction. One of the first things that came out in that case that was released by the police department was that these victims were targeted. Now, later on, they walked that back. But that's also something I'm looking at. Are these opportunistic victims? Were they just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Was the offender targeting a geographical location and it didn't matter who walked into that location, they were going to become the victim? Or were these victims actually targeted because of who they were and what they represented to the offender. So that's an initial question we're trying to answer. Risk level. What is the risk level of these victims? And sort of the flip side of that coin is what risk is the offender willing to take to commit these crimes? And then you're looking at things like weapon use, what type of weapon was it brought to the scene? Was it was a weapon used at the scene? In other words, did the offender rely on the victims to supply the weapon that he was going to use? What are the injuries? And this is an area that I've published in because I developed a homicide injury scale. So looking at looking at injuries, what type of injuries do we have? Where are the mortal wounds? Where are superficial wounds? Where are defensive wounds? Which wounds or injuries are postmortem? Which ones are anti Antimortem, which ones, if we can tell, are perimortem or during the course of dying? Do we have uh, multiple weapons that are being used? So, understanding injury, where those injuries are located on the body, how many injuries there are, would help us differentiate probably who is the targeted victim here, because it's rare that you actually have more than one target. You can. But typically, if you have multiple victims, you have one victim who's the target and other victims are simply killed because they're witnesses or to prevent the offender from being identified. Looking at how organized the whole crime was from, you know, 
access, what we call ingress into the scene and egress from the scene. Was there a level of planning going on here? What type of control or loss of control did the offender have? What did he do with the victims after they were deceased? Did he engage with them or not? Is there some kind of sexual assault? Is there some other identifiable motive like financial gain, theft, robbery, or sexual assault? Or is there some sort of personal agenda here? So there's a lot of moving parts within these complex scenes that we're trying to flesh out. And I'm looking at these things in terms of their chronology. How did these events happen in terms of what came first, second, third, and fourth. And that's where you would be trying to discern. You had four victims that were stabbed to death, but who was first and who was last? And can we discern that? Probably you can based on a number of things, not the blood spatter notwithstanding. How would you be able to tell where he had started in that house? Well, uh, blood trails would be very helpful, of course. So you're moving from room to room. And then, of course, you may not recognize it right away, but you're sampling blood samples. So whose blood is in what locations? That would probably help you. Probably the targeted victim is going to be first in this. So looking at the type of injuries, the injuries may be different in the different victims. Some may be injuries that are inflicted to essentially just eliminate the victim, while others maybe there's much more anger evident or the wounds are deeper, there are different types of wounds. So wound analysis is really important, especially when you have multiple victims, because if you can figure out who is the targeted victim, then their victimology becomes really critical. I mean, all their victimologies are important, but you want to try to focus on who is standing out here in terms of injuries that are different than the other three. And that will, I think, help focus on a particular victim and then perhaps working back from there, you're looking at their social media, you're looking at where they were that night, who they engaged with. So all of those things become important when you're looking at surveillance video, when you are looking if they've been at a bar or a certain location, you want to identify other people that were there and interview them. So all of these factors become important and they take time, of course, to do these types of investigative avenues. That is a lot of stuff that goes into profiling that I didn't even know is so detailed. Oh, it's yeah, but it's actually much more detailed than that. And I think when most people think about profiling, and I've gotten this question a lot of times, it's like, are you profiling me if I meet somebody? <laughs> are you profiling me? No, not really. I'm not, you know, uh, because what I'm actually doing is these in-depth assessments of the behavioral dynamics that are left at violent crime scenes. In other words, when a psychiatrist or psychologist interviews an inmate or they're trying to do a, an assessment on, they have the individual. They know what the individual has done and they're testing this individual. And they say, well, based on my tests, I would say this guy's narcissistic or he's a psychopath or he's bipolar or any number of psychiatric diagnosis. But I work exactly the opposite. I don't have the suspect in this case. I don't have the offender. All I have is the end result. I have the crime scene and the victims in the scene. So what I have to do is engage in analytical logic, which is I have the result. Now I have to work backwards to figure out what happened to get that result. And that's a different way of thinking about behavior. Typically, if I say, hey, I have the 
this car traveling this direction at 100 miles an hour and this car traveling the opposite direction at 60 miles an hour and they're on the same lane, what's going to happen? Well, that's easy to figure that out, right? Because you're working forwards. But if I just give you this massive collision crime scene and I say, okay, tell me what happened. That's that's more difficult. Then you have to get into different types of analytics and looking at the computers and skid marks and all these types of things to figure out what was the beginning process. And that's essentially what I'm doing with these complex scenes. And I think it's important to understand the types of crimes that really lend themselves well to this type of behavioral analysis are not all violent crimes. Actually, most violent crimes do not lend themselves to this type of analysis simply because there's not enough interaction between the victim and the offender, what we call the psychopathology of the interaction. So in the drive-by shootings and drug killings and gang killings and a lot of domestic violence homicides, you have a history that police can look back on or they understand, you know, this guy belongs to this gang and the victim belongs to this gang. Now, we understand this looks like a gang killing or this looks like a drug killing, where the types of crimes that really lend themselves to this type of analysis are these complex, unusual crimes that either have multiple victims, multiple offenders, excessively violent, a lot of activity at the crime scene, oftentimes post-mortem. So the more psychopathology you have within a scene, the easier it is to discern characteristics about your offender. So if someone calls me, say a police detective who doesn't work these types of cases, but if they say, hey, I got this homicide case. We had a sex worker. She's found nude in an alley with 15 stab wounds. What can you say about that? My response generally is I really can't say very much about it because it's not an uncommon type of homicide for a high-risk victim. That type of case does not lend itself well. Now, if you have a series of those cases, that's different. But in a single homicide, although it sounds very egregious and brutal to the detective working this case, and it is, and I'm not discounting that, but in terms of offering some insight into the case or to the offender, we need more complexity than that. So the types of cases that we look at are generally on the fringe of these excessively violent cases where there's a lot of time spent by the offender at the scene or a lot of interaction with the victims or very high risk type behavior. Those are the types of cases that we typically end up seeing. And oftentimes those are cold cases. Most of the cases that came in to the behavioral analysis unit were agencies who have very good investigators. They're top-notch homicide investigators. It's just that they don't typically work this type of case, but they do work them and they work them out for months or maybe even years. But at some point they don't have a suspect and they don't have anybody in custody. So they'll reach out sort of at, as a, in a sense, as a last resort and have the FBI's behavioral analysts look at this case to see if there's something else that they're missing. And, and oftentimes there very well can be. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. If you have the prostitute and she's been stabbed 15 times and then next week you have a prostitute that's been stabbed five times, could that technically be the same person? 
or they, you just look at it since they're a high risk victim as a different, like it doesn't have the similarities as the first victim. Well, there, so there's two, two things there that I think that are important. You just, you can't just look at the over the 10,000 foot view of those crimes saying sex workers found nude, stabbed to death, right? You actually, you have to look at each case individually and look at when does she work? Where was she picked up? Is she very security conscious about the type of John that she would go with? What her injuries look like? Are they in the same location as the other victims? Did she fight back? Does she have defensive injuries where the other one may not have defensive injuries? So there's a whole host of of these sort of micro analyses that I'm looking at because I'm trying to, first of all, decide, do we have connected cases, right? So I'm looking at similarities in the case, and I'm also looking at dissimilarities. And it's also very important when we talk about high-risk victims, and there's lots of types of high-risk victims, but let's just use prostitutes or sex workers as the category we're talking about. It's a very high risk for women like this because they work typically under the cover of darkness. They engage with someone they do not know one-on-one, and they typically will get into a vehicle and drive to a location, perhaps a location of their choosing, maybe not. But it's a very singular type of interaction. Now, if you take that same woman when she's not working and she's at home, say she's with her two kids, she's in a locked environment, and then she gets killed in that environment, that's a different scenario. So she may be high risk when she's working, but she may be much, much lower when she's not and in a secure environment. And then that begs the question about your offender. If she's available to the offender when she's in a high-risk situation, why does the offender feel the need to then elevate his risk by offending against her in her own home environment that's locked and maybe she has a dog or maybe the boyfriend's over there or the husband? I mean, you know, there's a, a whole host of other aspects that I'm thinking about why does he feel the need to elevate his risk when she's available at another time? So just because they're a prostitute or a sex worker doesn't mean they're always high risk any more than a low risk victim, say, you know, a mother who doesn't engage in any criminal activity or doesn't use drugs and does a good job, but she's got a couple of kids. But then she finds out like nine o'clock at night, she doesn't have any milk for the kids for breakfast. So she decides I'm going to run to the store real quick. My neighbor's going to come over and watch the kids. So she heads out and on the way she has a flat tire, right? So now she's out at night on a lonely road by herself. So her risk has now been situationally elevated. So we talk about situational risk too. So typically she'd be a low risk victim, but now her risk level is elevated. So you have to drill down into the weeds to see what are you really dealing with? And that's why victimology is important. Circumstances, their background, their history. And when I talk about victimology, it's not like asking the neighbors, what do you think of her? Oh, she's a nice person, great mother. You know, she makes cookies every Saturday. That's not the dynamic we're looking for. So we would interview or have the police interview multiple people, family members, neighbors, 
coworkers, friends. What type of person is this? What is their history, their financial history, their sexual history, their marital history, their work history? How would they handle being assaulted? Are they going to be a passive or are they going to be very aggressive? Where do they go? Who do they hang out with? There, There's just a whole host of things that we ask about in terms of victimology, criminal history, psychiatric history, all of these become important in creating a picture of the victim because we're trying to assess risk, right? And also trying to assess was this victim targeted or was this an opportunistic crime? Because it really changes the type of offender pool you're looking at. And I know this is what they were doing in Idaho, trying to figure out, did this guy just pick this house or did he have one of these women targeted or more than one of these women? Did he surveil the house? Has he been in the house? How does he know these people? Because Moscow is a small town, right? So why is he here? And why a house that has six people in it? That's pretty risky for someone to come into a house with multiple people. How does he know he won't be seen or maybe he doesn't care if he's seen? So these are all things that when you start looking at how did he get access, what is his movement through the house, who are the victims, can we order them, what type of injuries do they have, are they different? Because you're using a knife, it's an up close and personal type of attack. And when you have multiple victims like this, and you're using a weapon that clearly is going to have a lot of blood, is he comfortable with this? Is this his first time? Or does this guy seem like he's seasoned? Or maybe he's thought about this for so long, fantasized about it, that this is what excites him. So trying to make these assessments as you're looking at all of the evidence, right? Because we don't have him. We just have what he did at the crime scene. With that case in particular, they got like a little glimpse of his car. Does that help with you being able to profile more or? Right. So it would help us in one particular area that's different than what how it would help law enforcement investigators. So of course, they've got a car, right? Driving around multiple times by the house. That's very suspicious. So now they're trying to identify the car, right? And they can do that through DMV records. And that becomes a problem when you have a lot of cars. From our perspective, right? I'm not really looking at, okay, what type of car does he drive? Does that tell me anything about him? No. What I'm thinking about is, was he not concerned that there might be surveillance? Did he not think about driving back and forth or around the block six to 12 times? Did he not think that that might cause some problems for him in terms of the vehicle? So I try to think of it through his eyes. Like, what is he concerned about this or is he not concerned about this? And if he's not concerned about it, is it because he doesn't know? Is he not aware that there's going to be surveillance cameras in different locations? Was he not careful? So it starts to tell me a little bit about him. That's only one piece in this puzzle. But I think about it differently than the investigators because 
they're trying to identify the car. Yeah. Right. Because identifying the car then helps you identify who the car is registered to and then maybe who is driving it. But my perspective as a profiler is different. Have you ever had a case where there's a person that has just killed someone to kill them? Like they have no reasoning. They have no cause to do it. They just have killed people just because they walked past them and they're right there and they wanted to kill someone? Or does generally everybody have a reason? No, that's a good question. So I wrote a book with Dr. Ramsland actually from the sales university. So Catherine and I wrote a book on spree killers. So we have different types of spree killers. We actually have categorized spree killers the first time that this has actually been done. And so you do have like random opportunistic killers. So they may start out with a targeted victim but then once you killed, you kind of recognize that it's over for you. You're going to be found out. You're going to be arrested. And sometimes they just are then walking or driving and they will kill random people just because they're in this anger-fueled mood or they have mental health problems or there's different categories. But killers will kill random opportunistic people. But then we also have what we call thrill killers. So, and that's, I think, what you were just talking about. Thrill killers will kill people just to see what it's like, right? Just to see somebody die, just to see what it feels like. Typically, they're with firearms and typically they're from a distance. So they're distance kills, but they don't know the person. They're driving down the road. They see a guy driving on his tractor on the side of the road, plowing his field. Yeah, they stop, get out of the car, just shoot him. That's crazy. Right. Just That's just what they want to do, just to see what it feels like. And just because, or maybe they're angry at something and they're just like, okay, I'm going to kill this guy. Is that a hard person to find, those type of killers? It typically is because if you think back to what I was saying before in terms of psychopathology, so you have a very you have a very minimal crime scene. You have a victim at the site typically shot from a distance. So there's really no crime scene to speak of in terms of analysis. The offender drives off. So the interaction between the two of them is very, very short. There's no typically personal interaction. So yes, they're very difficult. You might get the caliber of weapon and you don't have a vehicle. You don't have a suspect description. You just have your victim who has a gunshot wound, right? And so you don't get a lot of information from that. Now, if you start getting multiple cases like that, and they typically will be spread out over a larger geographical area across counties or across states, then you can start to develop something because in, is it always a rural location? Is he really being careful about not being seen by other vehicles? But on a single case, that would be very difficult. Do people that commit the serial crime, do they typically plan it out? They have a specific person. They have a whole plan. It always depends, right? So we can't say serial killers are white males in their mid-20s who hate their mothers. It doesn't work that way, really. You have serial killers in every single country, in every culture, and most are men. Some are women. They kill for various reasons. They kill in various ways. Some have mental health issues like Richard Trenton Chase and Jeffrey Dahmer, honestly. And their crimes are not very organized. And you can see this within the crime. And then you have other types of serial killers. You have sexual sadists who are typically very difficult to catch because they're above average intelligence. They're 
plan their crimes. They're evidence conscious. They select their victims carefully. They target those victims. So you have really like a continuum on the serial killer scale, essentially, from very disorganized mental health problem type killers who oftentimes are, you know, arrested relatively quickly up to very complex, difficult serial killers, especially ones that move around geographically. And this day and age, our forensic capabilities are so much more advanced than they were in the 60s and 70s. We didn't even define serial killer until 1977. So if you don't have a definition for a type of killer, then you don't have a way to work it. When you look at these old cases, people ask, why were serial killers so prevalent in the 70s? You know, we hear about Kemper, the Green River Killer, Ted Bundy, and Jeffrey Dahmer, and how they were active for so many years. But you have to think about in terms of, we weren't even talking about serial killers back then. We didn't have task forces that we could put together for those types of cases. Nobody was talking, nobody knew anything about serial killers. There was no research about these types of individuals. Our, our forensics were lacking. We didn't have any databases. So there's a lot of reasons why these individuals were successful for so long. But now six has come a long way and there's tremendous amount of research that is going on all the time in various aspects of homicide and sexual assault and criminology. We interview these individuals. We know a tremendous amount about these types of people. And all of this becomes very important when you're developing a profile for a particular type of case. And I know this was what they were doing in Idaho. They were looking for a particular type of car. You know, it was just a matter of time before they figured out what they were looking for and who they were looking for. I knew that was coming, but people are going, hey, it's been five weeks. You don't have a suspect yet. Yeah, we're, we're getting a suspect. It's just taking a little bit of time, but this is how you have to proceed in a lot of these cases. And I'm sure, I don't know, but I think that crime scene was probably evidence rich. And that also tells you, is he aware of what he's leaving here and being seen and all these different dynamics of the whole scene together? I tell people, it's never a single item within a scene where you draw your importance, but it's the constellation of everything together. It's the totality of all of the evidence that you're looking at, whether it's the physical evidence, or the forensic evidence or the behavioral evidence. It's all of those put together that starts to form the pieces of your puzzle that you're laying in to help identify this individual. How long does it usually take you to profile someone when you're working backwards to get an idea of who he might be? Is that months or just depends? So it depends, but it depends on when you get access to the materials, right? So one thing I think people don't understand is that the FBI doesn't have jurisdiction in homicide cases. I mean, we sort of do in serial murder cases. There is a a statute that allows us to get involved. But typically, it's not like in uh, the old Bruce Willis movies where, you know, 
all of a sudden the, these guys in suits come busting through and go, Hey, we're the FBI. We're taking over. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, I yeah. cringe when I watch those movies and I see that because <laughs> that's absolutely not what we do. First of all, our unit was very small and we didn't have time to be going around going, Hey, we're taking over your case. No, we don't have jurisdiction. So the only time that we get involved in cases is if the agency asks us to come in and assist. Typically, as I mentioned before, a lot of the cases that we work are cold cases. So some of these cases are years old. The oldest case I testified in in Los Angeles County was 28 years old. Wow. But the thing about that is that even though I know I'm getting involved in the case like 26 and a half years later, if your investigators capture the scene and capture the evidence, that will never change. So I can look at a case that's six months old or five years old or 20 years old. And if you freeze the scene and you do a good job of interviews and collecting evidence and photographs and sketching your scene and doing all the things that you need to do, if you have all that captured, I can go back and look at that because I'm looking at that behavioral dynamic that existed at that time. And if you've captured it, that's to my benefit. It doesn't matter if it's six months or a year or five years later. And that's oftentimes what we get with the cold cases where the agency is thinking, how are we going to solve this case? Maybe we can have the FBI's behavioral analyst look at this and see if there's something that we don't see or something we've missed, and then we can move the case forward. So I think it just depends. And when I was in the unit, I wouldn't go to every scene, but I definitely would have gone to Idaho because it's a complex scene. You have multiple victims in multiple locations on multiple levels of a house. So actually seeing that in three dimensions would be very helpful. And then as I was saying before, you start doing the victimology on these victims. You start looking at how did he get in? How did he get out? Who was up? When did people come back? Did he interact with any of them? Or maybe he only interacted with one. Or maybe the time of interaction was much longer with one than the others. And maybe you can determine this from analyzing the scenes. So I think that type of information would be very helpful. And that's what we're doing when we're on scene. We're looking at all of this information. We're looking at the autopsy reports and toxicology and trying to understand all of these aspects of the victims. And a lot of that information isn't available right after the crimes have occurred. Autopsies often take weeks, maybe four or five days before the autopsy is done. And then it's weeks before report is prepared and toxicology is not available. All of the diagrams that they are doing and all the photographs haven't been cataloged and evidence has been collected. It hasn't yet been tested. It's been sent to the lab. So a lot of the information that you would likely need isn't available immediately. So again, it just depends on the case. Every case is going to be different. The complexity of every case will be different. But generally, once you have that information and you start discerning it and looking at all these various aspects or attributes of the information, then you can start to form a picture of the type of individual that you're looking for. And it isn't saying, oh, yeah, it's John Jones who lives over there. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to essentially build a composite picture of the type of individual this guy is. And then when we develop potential suspects, we say who matches, who really lines up 
with all of these various attributes we think this guy has. And then you start focusing. And in this case, they got the car, eventually they got it identified, and now they have a name associated with it. That's great. So now if you can get DNA from this individual, which they did surreptitiously through discarded trash, which is oftentimes how we do it. You just surveil somebody until they get rid of something that you know is going to have DNA on it. And then once you test that and then you make that connection, then it, the jig is up, so to speak. Like in the movies when they're throwing away a can and then someone grabs it really quick. Yeah. Well, you want to see them use it and discard it. And then you want to collect it before it gets touched or contaminated by anything else. And you're trying to do this surreptitiously. So it just takes time to to do those things. I wanted to go back and pick your brain a little bit. You had mentioned that the term serial killer wasn't really defined until 1977. How did you go about building a suspect profile from the victimology in the Robert Lee Yates cases since he started in 75. Right. I'm curious how that kind of played in since we didn't really know serial killers were a thing. So we weren't quite looking at that yet. How were you able to link his victims? That's right. So Yates had a number of murders. As far as we're aware, he started in 1975, killing two high school sweethearts. And he used, uh, I'm pretty sure it was like a 357 Magnum revolver handgun. And that's a case where you have one targeted victim, which was the female in this case. And then you have the male victim who's simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you're just eliminating the witness. So you see differences in the injuries. And then his last known case that we are aware of, at least the ones that were charged, was 1998. So you have a 23 years of him being active. And I can't remember what year I got involved in the case, but it was a couple years before he was arrested. So at that point, they recognized that they had a serial killer. I went to all the crime scenes. And like I've been discussing with you guys, I looked at all of the information with each of these crimes. And then we also have the temporal component, right? The time component. So I knew the sequence of all of these victims, at least when they were found. It doesn't mean when they disappeared. Some disappeared and were found after others. That's an important component as well. When was the last time the victim was seen? And then when was their body discovered? You sort of put these into a chronological order and then in a time order. And what I'm trying to do is break down the behavior between his MO or his modus operandi. What is the behavior that he's engaging in to be a successful killer? In other words, what does what is he doing that makes him successful? What is he doing to protect his identity? What is he doing to make sure he can escape or get away from the crime scene? And the MO will typically change over time because they get better. You know, Yates got better at killing. He had problems with blood because he would shoot these victims in the head in his car. And he recognized, oh my gosh, like I've got this big blood problem. I can't have blood in my car. So he starts to figure out ways to get around that. First, he started using towels, and then he started using grocery bags, using one, and then he started using two, and then he started using three. So as you see his crimes progress, you see he changes. He gets better. His MO 
develops and he gets better. He stopped using a 357 Magnum handgun because it's loud. It's the report on that gun is so loud. So he recognized I have to have a quieter gun. And especially if you're going to fire it inside your car, it's going to be loud anyway, but he started using a 25 auto. So it's a pretty small handgun and the report is not very loud. So we see the change in his MO over time, but I'm also looking at, as I can see all these different cases, what is his ritualized behavior or the need-driven behavior that he has, which typically does not change over time because it's driven by some emotional or psychological need to engage in that particular behavior at the crime scene. And that, that need typically is developed early in life, sometime in adolescence, and keeps reoccurring over and over again. It's a necessary part of the crime. So he's not going to commit the crime without engaging in this sort of need-driven behavior. So I'm trying to discern what is his MO from what is his ritualized behavior? What does he do to be a good killer and not get caught and get away? And you know, for, for most offenders, that ritualized behavior elevates their risk because it forces them to stay at the crime scene longer, to engage with the victim more or longer. And anytime you're hanging around when you don't need to, and you're engaging with your scene or with your victim, there's a greater chance of leaving physical evidence or being seen by somebody. So their risk typically gets elevated when they're engaged in this ritualized type of behavior. So once you have a lot of cases, you know, we're talking about 18, 19 murders, you really get a good sense of what's going on. Is there an escalation of behavior? How is his behavior changing? And we can link some of the cases based on ballistics. We can link some of them based on DNA, although we didn't have DNA early on, of course. And then behaviorally, that was the key because some cases we linked by ballistics, some cases we linked by DNA, but I went in and looked at all of these cases and I looked at them from a physical evidence standpoint and also a behavioral standpoint. So behaviorally, I can show he's escalating in his behavior. He's changing, but he's getting better. Some victims he buried, some victims he just dumped. So it just depended um, the situation that he was in. So you, you couldn't really say, well, you know, this one was dumped and this one was buried. So there must be different types of killers. Like I was saying, you have to look at the totality of the events, the constellation of everything together in each of these crimes, and then how they're progressing through time. As I did in court, when I testified in his trial, now, I didn't say it's Robert Lee Yates. I just said that these cases are all linked together. So ipso facto, if the DA says, well, we've linked Robert to these cases. So the, clearly these other cases are all, all his as well. That was essentially what I did because clearly, as you were stating, these cases began in 1975. So what we were collecting for evidence back then is going to be different than what we're collecting in 1998. When And this is kind of one of those silly questions because I think it's based on what we see on TV, but when you're building out this profile of an individual that you think is committing these crimes, 
are you getting as granular as like, it's probably a male in their fifties who has dad issues. He may have a family and kids. What attributes are you able to actually kind of assign to a character as you're building out your profile? Right. Depends on the case, depends on the complexity of the case, because we're basing this a lot on the research that has been done, research we've done, research that other people have done. You know, what do these individuals look like, right? And based on their behavior, do we see a mental health problem? What is the age range? Do we think this offender's in? What type of job is this guy going to be in? Is he going to follow the media? Can we influence him if we have the media help us formulate sort of the type of information we're going to put out? What type of vehicle might this guy drive? right? Where might he live? What personality characteristics would people who know this guy recognize? Is he going to be a guy who's going to talk disparagingly about the victims when he sees media reports? Is he not going to care about the media? So we're trying to build not the individual, but we're trying to build those characteristics because what we're going to do, eventually we're going to develop suspects or the police are going to develop suspects. And we're going to say, okay, instead of looking at a hundred percent of this pie, we only want to look at this 15%. It doesn't mean that if a suspect ends up in this other percentage that we're going to discount him, he's just going to be on a lower tier in terms of who we're going to focus on. But when we get a guy who becomes a suspect and he matches all these behavioral dynamics and personality characteristics, this guy is going to be somebody we have to rule in or rule out. So that's essentially what we're doing. We're trying to build sort of the profile of what this individual would be like and how people will interact with him, right? So what's that dynamic going to look like? Do we see mental health issues within this crime scene? How would mental health issues present in a crime scene? Depends on whether we're talking about, say, personality disorders or whether we're talking about actual mental health disorders like psychosis. Because those types of things we can recognize in crime scenes based on things that they do and it's just different aspects that you can make an assumption about, you know, we think there's a mental health problem with this individual. So Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's all trying to put pieces together. What I tell people is there are a lot of law enforcement tools, you know, forensic bloodstain analysis forensic pathology, and behavioral assessment is another tool in the toolbox. It's not the end-all, be-all. We often come into these cases well into the case. We have a very specialized area that we are very good at, and then we render that opinion, and then we provide that to the law enforcement agency, and we may stay in contact with them, but we give them that information. But they're the boots on the ground. They're doing all of the investigative work, and, and I never take that away from the agencies. We're not there to solve the case. And like I said at the outset, sometimes they already have somebody in custody. That happens a lot when I'm testifying as an expert witness that somebody's been arrested. They're in custody for this homicide. Now I'm looking at other dynamics within the scene. Has the crime scene been staged? Is there undoing behavior? Is there depersonalization? Is there a proprietary interest? So all of these other behavioral dynamics are 
considerations beyond their MO or their ritualized need-driven behavior. What else is happening here that may be useful for moving the case forward? And typically, if I'm testifying as an expert witness in a case like that, it's because it's very circumstantial, but behaviorally, it becomes very powerful. And again, it's not my job to say that all of these various attributes match the guy sitting over there at that table. That's not my job. That's the job of the jury and the job of the judge. My job is to lay out for the prosecution and for the court all these various interesting aspects, like if there's staging or if there's depersonalization, what those are, how we'd recognize them, and what they mean. And then I give that information. Then basically that tells you something about your offender and the relationship that offender has with this victim. And then it's the prosecutor's job then to say, yes, and all of those things match this guy over here. Do you find it challenging when incidents like the Idaho murders happen to stop yourself from trying to build a profile on somebody? If I were you, I feel I'd be watching the news being like, oh, I wonder about this. I think about this, you know, do you, of course, are you I, able to I, turn it off? I do think about those things and I kept going, oh, I wish I was out at that crime scene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I think that was a very rich crime scene and there would be a lot to understand. I got called by the media like 20 different times to be on various TV networks and some podcasts, but I declined all of them because they were being very close about releasing any information. And I am not a speculator. So for me, speculating is just guessing it's this or it's that. Well, yeah, but anybody can say that, right? They're targeted or they're not targeted. Well, yeah, but that's not helpful. And I don't know because I don't get to see that information. I think I could make that assessment and I could talk about targeting and who was the target and movement through the house. And I could talk about a lot of things and offenders comfort level and those sort of things. If I had access to that information, I try not to rely on what's released by the media. Some of it is accurate and other pieces are not accurate. And I don't get to see the autopsy or the crime scene photos, or I don't know anything about their victimology or what they were doing that night. I know we have media reports about where they were and such, but it's it was a very closed case, which it should be, right? Investigators shouldn't be releasing all this information about the case because they're working on certain aspects and they want to keep those close, right? They have hold back information. I will comment on other types of cases, but in that case, I just felt didn't want to be involved in that without really having information that would, I think, have helped me direct thoughts about who this offender was and motivation, that sort of thing. It was just all kept very tight. I guess my next question, Mark, is how did you get into this? Because I imagine as like a seven-year-old little boy, this wasn't your dream. It certainly couldn't have been. There was no such thing (laughs) (laughs) when I was seven. So how did you get into it? It actually is an interesting, I mean, I guess it's a little bit interesting, but even when I graduated from college, I had never thought about being in law enforcement. I was really headed into medicine and I came from a medical family and, but I didn't get into school on my first application. So I wanted to keep my hand in the medical field because if I was going to apply the following year, I wanted to have some connection, like showing that I was interested, right? 
So I decided to become a paramedic on an ambulance. So I did that and I found it very interesting. But what I realized is that every call I was going out on, whether it was a shooting or a stabbing or an assault or car accident, police were always there, always police. And I started to see the type of job that they were doing. And then we'd go to the hospital and then I'd see police at the hospital and I'd hear them doing the interviews and things. And I found it interesting. So I thought, well, I'll go on a citizen ride along program. And then most people just go once, right? Just to see what their police department is doing on a daily eight hour basis. But I didn't go once. I went twice and then three times. And by the 12th time I was going back for a ride along, the sergeant said, hey, you should just become a reserve police officer. And that's what I did. I, I put myself through the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office Reserve Academy and became a reserve officer. And I had a regular job. So I was working that during the day. And then I would come home and change my uniform and go to work. And I worked in a two-man unit for about 10 months. And essentially, I was working for free, but I just really loved it. And it was at that time I decided that I really didn't want to go into medicine. I wanted to go into law enforcement because I just found it fascinating. And that's what I did. So I applied, became a police officer, worked patrol for, I don't know, three and a half years. But I was college educated. And at that time, a lot of police officers could get in with a high school education. So I could write articulate, well-reasoned reports. And because of that, I got approached about becoming a detective, which I was very excited about. And I, I did. I got into detectives. I started in property crimes and I moved into violent crimes, homicide and sexual assault. And I went to a homicide school and there were two FBI profilers. And this was 1982. This is sort of when profiling is just kind of getting started. Uh, and there were a couple FBI profilers there and I never heard heard of profiling. So I was working homicides and violent crimes. And, and I spent, this was a two-week homicide school, and we got two days with FBI profilers. And I was so intrigued by this because I had a couple of homicide cases that were unsolved, cold cases. I didn't work them originally, but I took them over, one a double homicide, one a single, both with really unusual attributes, both are sexual homicides, but one had a lot of movement across counties. And so there's a lot of interesting dynamics. And I took those cases and I submitted them to the FBI for analysis because I thought this is exactly the type of case that would be a good case for them to analyze. And that's what started my interaction with the behavioral unit. And after a while, I decided, you know what, that's what I really want to do. I want to do this kind of work. So I put my application in to be an agent and took a year to get through the process and I became an agent. And then it took me 11 years to get into the unit. Wow. It was a long process. And then I stayed there for the rest of my career. I absolutely love the work. And I stayed until Bob Ressler, who was the guy that coined the term serial killer, the modern iteration of serial killer, asked me to join him as his partner. And after 23 years, I retired from the FBI and joined him. And he was sick at the time. And after about a year, I took over the business because he was no longer able to. And yeah, he passed in 2013, but- Sorry about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was. it's one of those tragic things. We lost a hero and one of the mentors to this field. But a lot of people have picked up that mantle. I'm one of them, but there are a number of others. This is such a fun and interesting conversation, Mark. I feel like we could keep talking to you for so long. I apologize. We've already gone over an I hour. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sometimes just is interesting. Oh, it really yeah, is. It is. 
is. And Nikki and I are the most curious people. So <laughs> we could talk to you all day. I'm curious too. Well, Nikki, I think we should wrap up with a couple of fun questions. Otherwise, I think we're going to keep Mark on the line <laughs> all day. We're just going to jump over to just some silly, random, fun, easy ones. Okay. My first one is if you were to choose your last meal, what would it be? Probably pizza. From where? And what's on it? Oh, homemade. I make great pizza. Oh, I oh, love yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Homemade crust. Yeah, I make great pizza. So I prefer my pizza over anybody else's. Okay, I have to ask you this because I actually just saw this online the other day. So tell me <laughs> if you do this. But they were saying if you make your own pizza at home, if you put a little cornmeal on your pan underneath, yeah. that, that makes it a little more like crusty. Is that a thing? Do you do that? I use a pizza pan, so it has holes in it, and I don't use cornmeal, um, and I never have a problem with my dough. So, okay. I mean, I do use some flour, but yeah, I make a thick crust. Yeah, it's really I good. I mean, you're making me hungry for lunch, but <laughs> so, sounds good to me. I always like to ask this one. What is one of your hobbies? Um, I work out five okay. days a week. So, Everybody and, works out. <laughs> well, I think it's a way to relieve stress. I do a lot of spinning. So I spin at 530 in the morning. Oh, wow. Like I did this morning. So, you know, we're up around 430 and then get to the gym and I'm in a class. So I, re I really like spinning and then weight training. So I think you need those kinds of activities when I spend my day looking at the type of material that I look at on, on a daily basis. It's not that I have a problem with it because I, I think one of the key dynamics of being a good profiler is being able to emotionally dissociate yourself from the material that you're looking at. So it isn't that I don't empathize with the victims, but my job is to not become emotionally entangled with either the suspects or the victims in these cases. Because by the time a case comes to me, I'm sort of in that last line of defense. So it really is incumbent upon me to do the best job I can. I got one last one. I always like to ask this one too. What is something you collect? What do you have a lot of? Oh gosh. <laughs> These are always fun for me, like pens. Yeah. So I have a lot of watches. Oh, okay. I, I actually have collected pens, but I have about 34 watches. Whoa, that's a lot of <laughs> That's I know, a lot. That's a lot of watches, right? Yeah, it's crazy. But do you wear them all? Like, or once you're done with them, they just go to the collection. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> it's funny because I will see a watch that I really, really like, and then I will get it and I will wear it for a while. But then I'm like, oh, yeah, this watch isn't that comfortable. And so <laughs> then it, it doesn't get worn again, you know. But there I have my stalwarts that I always come back to. Okay. Uh, yeah, but you know, it's like anything. <laughs> it's like it's an accoutrement that you have and some of them you buy and you think you're going to really like them and yeah. you, know, you like them and some you don't like that much. And yeah. the ones I don't like just sit in the watch box. <laughs> they don't get worn, <laughs> but maybe rarely. So Oh, I like that. That's a good one. I've enjoyed my afternoon with you, Mark. And thank you so much for, for taking the time again to speak with Nikki and I. We both really appreciate it. Sure. No, I, I found it really enjoyable. Thanks for, oh, for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, thank you. And I always like, I think it's important to educate people about what we do because television gives us such a microscopic view of and a very slanted view of what criminal profilers do, especially if you watch some of the other shows like criminal minds and it looks like we do everything and we fly all over the country all together for a case and that just doesn't 
this doesn't happen at all. It's very, very different in real life than it is on television. And how we do our analyses and what we're trying to do is very different than entertainment television. Well, that's partly the goal of the podcast is to kind of help debunk some of the things that you see in mainstream media, how they apply to forensics. Exactly. No, and that's, I think that's really important. Even when I present to homicide investigators, they're experienced in this realm, but oftentimes they don't really know what we do. And so it's an education process for people who are really in the know about a lot of this stuff. And so when you go to the general public, it's oftentimes eye-opening in terms of what we're actually doing out there, what we're trying to do and what our role is and how we do it, what we're looking at and where we're trying to go with it. So I, I always like being part of that educational process and podcasts like this will be helpful for a lot of people. Absolutely. And you explain it so well. Yeah. So well. And I appreciate that so much. So thank Excellent. you again. Enjoy the rest of your Monday and we thank will you. talk soon. Thanks guys. Take okay. Care. Thank you. You bet. What'd you think? It's really good. It's really, really good. Right? I mean, this is one of those jobs that I would just love to even be like an intern on or just hang out in the office. You don't have to pay me. I'll just get coffee. But just witnessing these people work and how they work and what they're doing, it's so cool. It's really interesting how it's like a puzzle. And I'm not good with these type of things. I like watching movies or obviously talking to people that do this. But I think it'd be hard to start from nothing. One little tiny clue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you just have to start walking it back and trying to figure it out. It's just so interesting. It's just, it was really neat. I was so interested the whole entire time he's talking. Yeah, he's fantastic. I would love to have him back and talk more in depth with him about, oh, I mean, I still have an entire list of questions. I think we could have chatted with I him swear, for eight hours. Right? Yeah. He was fantastic. I thoroughly no, enjoyed I, him. Yeah. It's just such a really interesting job. I love this. It was, this one was really awesome. It was a great Tuesday. I, I hope you feel better now that you don't uh, have Mindhunter. Yeah. But maybe just go watch it. Start from season one. It softens. Live in its glory and let it rest. I'm going to have to do a little Google yeah. search on this to make sure you're not lying to me. But I'm really not. I wish I wasn't. Well, it did soften the blow. Well, I'll see you at uh, same place next week. All right. See you there. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.